Dr. Maskett is here. There was a little miscommunication on our part. He came on time, but we, uh, Sam, come on up. Anyway, let's welcome Dr. Maskett. Well, good afternoon. Uh, I want to thank Dr. Nesburn for inviting my presence, and I hope in some way I can support uh, his activities with Discovery Eye. Uh, also, I want to thank you very much for being here. Please raise your hand if you're going to have difficulty seeing videos or pictures of eyes having surgery. Okay. Well, then, then duck. <laughs> uh, but I, I do intend to show you photos and, and look at videos and talk about where we are and where we're going and what some of the controversial issues are. So when we consider the, the future, we always have to look at what are the trends. And so we'll consider some of the megatrends, both technologically uh, and also very much demographically. Uh, and also, you always have to consider it economically. So having that in mind, we'll take a look at what are some of the, the megatrends and where we're going from where we are. I do have some financial disclosures. Um, uh, I do work with some of the companies. Uh, but none of that, of course, has any bearing on what I will tell you today. Um, so what really are the questions that we have to ask about the future of cataract surgery? And the first question is, who's going to need it or who will use the service, so to speak? Second question is, how are we going to do it or provide that care? And then th I think the real question is, who's going to do it? So... And then we could even consider the fourth question, that is, who will pay for it? So those are the issues that need to be discussed. Um, who will need it? There's some really interesting information here. Um, when we consider what the megatrend is in this situation, it's what we call the graying of the baby boomer generation. By the year 2030, or 20 years from now, the over 65 age portion of the United States will be doubled that it was just 10 years ago at Y2K. So that's kind of daunting when you think about that. When we take a look at this group of the baby boomers, typically these people have really used a lot of health care services to uh, maintain youth uh, and maintain their active lifestyle. I mean, gallons of Botox and Restylane and, and silicone placed in a variety of areas, all right, to enhance, so to speak, one's appearance, one's lifestyle, and one's ability to be a very active member of society. So we anticipate that this group of individuals will, have, will place great demands on the health care system for uh, our services in eye care. Also, when you take a look at the eye care diseases that typically come with advancing age, they include cataract or clouding of the natural lens, which is what a, a cataract is, glaucoma, corneal disease, macular degeneration, these all go hand in hand with the aging process. So we definitely anticipate a strain on our ability to deliver care. Also because in Southern California it seems that the wearing of eyeglasses is considered an absolute no-no, um, we are using and we will see more and more use of cataract-like surgery or what we call lens, this is the lens of the eye, 
uh, of removing the lens and replacing with an artificial lens for the purpose of eliminating the need for glasses, particularly as that technology uh, continues to improve and expand. So we see that there's going to be a great desire for what's called lens-based surgery. Those people have cataracts and need to have their lens removed and replaced to improve their vision, and those people who wish to use lens-based surgery to reduce or eliminate their need for spectacles. Uh, let's take a look at some of this demographic information. Uh, the blue area represents the population uh, by age in the year 2006. So this is what existed in 2006 for these age ranges. And then this represents the added, um, by 2025, the added burden, so to speak, of people in this age group. And let's see what this really means, how this really plays out. So approximately now, we have roughly 57 or maybe 60 million people in the United States between the age of 55 and 80. Let's see what's going to happen in 2025. This is now going to go up to approximately 90 million. So we have a roughly 50% increase in this segment of the population, and this is the segment that needs and uses cataract surgery. So we expect to see a 60% increase in the amount of cataract surgery, the need for surgery at that time, and glaucoma probably about a 50% increase. And this has nothing to do with macular disease, corneal disease, or other conditions. So I think these numbers are, are very significant. Also, if we take a look here at one other graphic way of looking at the aging or the graying of our society, uh, the top groups represent that over the age of 55. And just by proportion, you can see how much greater uh, is the age, uh, the uh, older age groups uh, relative to the younger age groups as time is going to move on. Now, we expect someday this trend is going to change, but not until we get in and around the 2050 range, uh, where I suspect very few, if any of us, will be here. Uh, so I think we've answered pretty much who's going to need it. A lot of people, all right? It may surprise you to know that in the United States, each week, we do roughly 50,000 cataract surgeries, uh, somewhere around 2.5 million per year. Uh, worldwide, it's about 12 million. So imagine this is going to increase by at least 50 to 60% over the next 20 years. Now, how will it be done? And I think those are very, very important questions. For those of you who have not had cataract surgery or are unfamiliar with the process, I will be showing you what we consider the current state at least what I consider the state of the art in cataract surgery. But we'll take a look how it's done today and what are the influences that will change how it will be done in the future. So the things that, can, that are important to us as surgeons, and uh, it may, I don't want to put information too beyond uh, your scope, but we're always concerned about infection at the time of surgery. Fortunately, this is a relatively infrequent occurrence, but as you can imagine, a serious infection inside the eye can be sight-threatening, so that's very, very important. Inflammation uh, also affects the way the eye will function following surgery, and so we are very, very careful with medications and our surgical technique to reduce inflammation because this will also have a bearing on how the patient will see after surgery. Now, LEC stands for lens epithelial cells, and this is very technical. 
But for those of you who have cataract surgery, you may be familiar with the need for a laser procedure later on to clear a cloud in part of, of the eye following surgery. And that relates to, this is the casing of the lens, and what we're seeing here is a lot of scar tissue, so to speak, forming in the case of that lens following surgery. For the future, we need, we must have a way to modulate or modify how the cells of the casing of the lens act after surgery, and we don't have good ways today at all. Uh, this is a, a schematic of a device that was developed in Australia to help us deal with this problem with, with the cells, and we really haven't gone very far with it. So parallel technology will need to be delivered and developed along with our development of new surgical methods for dealing with cataract. But the megatrends really represent to patient expectations and consumerism. Um, for those of you who have had or are about to have cataract surgery, your doctor may have spoken to you about what's referred to as a premium lens. Typically, under Medicare or the other insurance programs, the lens that is used to replace the cloudy cataract lens is included in the fee. It's called bundled. So there's not an extra charge for that lens. But those lenses are typically monofocal lenses. That is, they can give a patient distance vision or near vision or computer distance vision, but not all of them. There are lenses now that are designed to cover those bases. Um, but the insurance carriers, including Medicare, doesn't recognize getting rid of glasses as being medically necessary. They recognize that cataract surgery to make you see better is necessary, but it's not their concern whether you need to slip on reading glasses or driving glasses, just so long as with or without glasses you can see better. But if you want, as an individual, to reduce your need for glasses, you can then opt, if presuming you're a candidate for these devices, you can then opt for uh, some of these, uh, what are, can we call them, premium or presbyopic lenses. A presbyopia is the condition where you can't focus it near, and if you want to have a lens that will allow you to do that, we have what are called presbyopic lenses. But what we've done now is we've asked you as the patient to reach into your pocket and pay money for lenses that offer the promise of reduced spectacle dependence. This creates consumerism. You're now paying for something and you want, you have expectations for what you're going to get, so to speak, bang for the buck. And so your expectations change when you have to now have discretionary spending for these devices. And this has made a very, very big difference in how we approach and manage our patients uh, surgically as what we do, as well as there is a need definitely for what we call pampering because um, our surgery, our calculation for the lens requirement and all these things is not always perfect. And so there's some things we have to do after surgery uh, in order to achieve the goal of, of spectacle independence. Now, it is technical how we uh, achieve these goals. Um, I refer to the six A's or that relate to how we get the patient seeing what they want. We have to control their astigmatism. In the last presentation regarding corneal transplant surgery, you saw some numbers about corneal astigmatism, and you recognize that astigmatism is kind of a distortion of the shape of the cornea or other parts of the eye that blurs the image so that it requires the use of glasses. So we have to control their astigmatism. 
when we measure the eye for a lens, that process is referred to as biometry. So we have to use accurate biometry, the A there. And when we figure out, once we measure the eye, how to apply that number to figure out what lens to use for that patient, that's, we have to use the right formulas to figure out exactly what power lens is going to work. Uh, it's technical also about what an aspheric lens is, and I don't think we need to discuss that. But accommodation is the ability to change focus. So patients want us to provide accommodation for them. And because we're not perfect with our formulas, and there are reasons why we're not, it's not because we're sloppy. It's because there are assumptions in the formulas that can't truly be known. In the schematic of the eye, this is called the Gullstrand formula. Um, but a Gullstrand is the only ophthalmologist ever to win a Nobel Prize, for whatever that's worth. And he did it for his, his optical formulas, uh, understanding how the eye works optically. But in cross-section, this is where the lens sits in the eye after surgery. And we can't know exactly how far from the back of the cornea or from the front of the retina this lens will sit. It's impossible to know that. And because of that, all of our formulas have what I call fatal flaws uh, or, uh, or something else. So we will need to adjust the outcome for these patients after surgery. Here are the megatrends. Automated surgery, that is eliminating surgical skill as a variable. Real-time aberometry. Aberometry is measuring the eye at the time of a procedure to determine the optical error, and if we can adjust it at that moment. And then we'll talk about surgical adhesives or glues for our incisions. Uh, you saw in the last presentation how the use of the femtosecond laser to cut the corneal tissue allowed that to, to more firmly adhere and be more regular in its healing. Well, we want to talk about the use also of surgical adhesives to protect our incisions and enable them to heal faster uh, with uh, uh, greater stability. So we will talk about where we're going with automated surgery. Um, and what are the key steps that do require this precision for automation that are today very technically demanding? That is making entries into the eye, um, making the opening in the front part of the lens, and getting rid of the lens material. And we'll look at what all these things mean. But this is where the movement is toward the future. Um, if any of you remember the movie The Jazz Singer and Sir Lawrence Olivier speaking to his son, Neil Diamond, he said, how do you know where you're going if you don't know where you've been? So this is where we are today with cataract surgery. I'm going to show a video. If anybody has difficulty with the video, please let us know. Um, before we run the uh, picture, what you see here, this is the pupil, this edge here. This is the iris. The hole in the iris is the pupil. And these kind of waterfall-looking things are clouding parts of the lens. This is, by definition, a cataract. And the word cataract actually comes from waterfall. And when people started to look at, and, you know, there's the cataracts of the Niles, et cetera, uh, of the Nile, where the Nile River actually begins, um, the original observers uh, with microscopes and what have you of the eye looked at this type of opacity and said, it looks like a waterfall, and hence the name cataract. So a cataract, which we as clinicians refer to as a clouding of the lens and there are a variety of forms, we call this a cortical cataract, actually looked like um, a waterfall to the original observers. Question, please. Uh, 
The long and short, the question is unrelated to cataract. Let me go back a couple of pictures here. Let's going forward. Let's go back. There was a question here about floaters and how do we get rid of them. This is a schematic representation of the eye, just like it was cut like an apple. This is the cornea, and you heard lots about the cornea in the last presentation. Um, this is the back of the eye filled with a jelly-like material known as vitreous. And the vitreous is attached in several places to the retina in the back of the eye. Primarily around the optic nerve, it has a ring of material. The vitreous is mostly water, 99% of it is water, but it also has some fibrous structure. Over the course of our life, this jelly, which is very much like solid jello when we're children, no imperfections, no liquid pockets, changes to jello that becomes more like liquid. When you leave jello out of the refrigerator and it starts to liquefy, the, the uh, vitreous, like the jello, will get these little pockets of water and other particles in them. And then at some point in our life, the fibrous part of the jelly pulls. And it pulls away from the optic nerves and leaves this ring of tissue that ordinarily attaches back there, pulls it in front, and now we see it. And that ring, that particular material, is what you note as a major floater. And uh, almost, well, roughly 70% of eyes by age 70 will have that uh, event, so very common. Getting rid of it, basically it, it's not done. There's a growing trend among surgeons who work in the back of the eye to remove the jelly for that purpose. Remains somewhat controversial because the risks of that surgery uh, can be significant, whereas um, the tolerance to floaters is usually, uh, you know, usually adequate that it doesn't require us to remove the jelly. But it is interesting that you mention it because more and more as we have greater consumer demand, patients are really demanding to get rid of floaters. People have tried using lasers to break them up. It's not really successful. So by and large, you either live with it or find a vitro-retinal surgeon who's courageous enough along with you to have them removed. And uh, most of us would advise against it. Next question. Well, there is a piece of tissue, all right, a ring of what we call glial or fibrous tissue attached to the optic nerve. That's part of the vitreous. When the fibers start to pull, that tissue pulls away from the nerve. It's not pulling on the nerve. It pulls itself free from the nerve. And it's that ring of tissue that we see as a floater. It's vitreous traction um, here at the what's called the vitreous base in the more front part of the eye that gives you the flashes. And anything that pulls on the retina can give it a mechanical stimulus, just like when you hit your eye, which is not advisable. But when you hit your eyes and say you see stars, it's the same thing. So when you get traction on the retina, you will see flashes of light. So let's move along. Let's go away from the floaters and back to the cataract. Share all the questions you want. When the vitreous is removed from the back of the eye for whatever surgical reason, the floaters go with it. The question is, is it safe enough to do it just for floaters? This is very controversial today. Uh, in fact, as an aside, um, I moderate at our annual meeting of the American Academy of Ophthalmology, I moderate what is called the great debate. And that is one of five subjects that's going to be debated this year. 
whether or not it's wise and safe to remove the jelly or the vitreous just for floaters. So it's new, it's controversial, um, but there seems to be great demand. So everybody ready to watch cataract surgery? So this is this is where we are today. Um, the main thing we have to do is get into the eye. I'm making a mark here uh, on the surface of the cornea that I'm going to use as a guide to peel open the front part of the lens. You can consider the lens kind of like an M&M in its size and its shape. And I'm making a series of entries. Now, this is being done manually by me with both steel and diamond blades. So this is one of the things that will need to be automated. I'm, I'm putting a chemical inside the eye that helps dilate the pupil because the lens sits behind the iris and we need access to the lens. And now I'm putting in a jelly-like material called a viscosurgical substance to cushion the eye and make space inside the eye. And I'm now making an entrance in through the very edge of the cornea uh, with a diamond instrument that is exquisitely sharp and allows me to make this, what I like to think is a precise 2.2 millimeter incision into the eye. So the incision will be automated. This stage right here of making the circular opening in the lens capsule, I'm going to freeze it for just a moment. Um, remember, I, I said it's like an M&M, and what the goal of our surgery is is to peel open a piece of that candy coating in the front and get rid of it. The candy coating is like the capsule of the lens. And then we get rid of all the chocolate filler, and but leave the candy coating behind, the rest of it, and clean it and put the lens back in there. So what I'm doing at this stage is peeling open the front part of the lens called the capsule. This is a skill-dependent procedure. And it varies with the ability to make this exactly the size we want, the shape we want, uh, varies with conditions inside the eye, the instrumentation we use, and also the skill of the surgeon. And it can be more difficult under certain circumstances, children, cataracts of, of special types and what have you. But this is what we would consider to be a garden variety type of cataract. How is that so skill of the surgeon. No, it has skill of the surgeon. Uh, it, it, no, I mean, it, it, it is skill of the surgeon, but it's a little technical, but there are forces. Let me just freeze this for a moment. There are, there's a pull of these little strings that hold the lens in place. They tend to pull in one direction. We tend to pull in the other. And if you move in a circular path, it'll tear in a circular path for you. That is, that's exactly correct. And removing the very front, just like the candy coating of the M&M. Now, this is the instrument called the FACO emulsifier. It's an ultrasound-generated tool that enables us to divide and remove the lens material from inside the casing of the lens. I'm using two instruments here. This is the emulsification instrument and then a little mechanical tool to help me chop the lens in pieces. This procedure known as phaco emulsification um, has been around for roughly 40 years. It's been refined many, many, many times to make it a safer, more reproducible procedure. 
And when I started doing this technique, or using this instrument, it was a much grosser tool 30 years ago. Uh, I was among 5% of U.S. surgeons using this, this device. Today, 95% of U.S. surgeons use it. Uh, the lay public has always been under the impression that this is a laser. It is not. It is an ultrasound-driven tool. But the idea is to subdivide the chocolate part, so to speak, of the M&M or the clouded lens material and leaving the case behind. That casing is very delicate, and in roughly 2% of surgeries nationwide, that casing uh, will develop a defect during surgery um, because it's so thin. It's, it's about 5 microns thin on the back, so it's easy to be damaged, but, but in, in the overwhelming majority of patients, it is not. These are the softer parts of the cataract being removed without ultrasound. Yes, just pure suction and also this fluid coming in to keep the eye filled. Now, if you remember, I mentioned LECs or lens epithelial cells. They will determine how this casing behaves after surgery. Even though this is a kind of a saran wrap-like membrane, it is living tissue. And we want it to remain clear, and we, we want it to remain, so to speak, free of scars or getting stiff. So what we do is I'm cleaning the back layer of the capsule, but we'll even clean off. Let me just freeze this for a moment here. Uh, well, it's not visible now. We'll get to it in just a moment. Here we go. Uh, there are cells. It looks like just a little gray sludge here, over here, too. So we're going to use tools to polish the, the capsule to try and remove the cells as much as we can in order to... Uh, have the capsule behave in a certain described or, or desired fashion following surgery. So again, what I want you to appreciate in this surgery is how much of this is dependent upon the surgeon. Um, using these little tools that have sharp surfaces, working with the ultrasound tool, which can basically make a milkshake, I mean, it really requires that the surgeon pay very careful attention to detail um, obviously requires a cooperative patient. Most of the surgery is done just under eyedrop anesthetic. And then this is the lens going into the eye, and it opens up. It's got these kind of like Mr. Clean arms on it that hold it in place, and it goes through that tiny 2.2-millimeter incision, uh, but because it's foldable and malleable, we can um, uh, put it through that opening, have it open up kind of like a ship inside the bottle, and go right inside that casing, protecting it from uh, the iris and other important structures of the eye. And then we go about the process of removing that jelly that I put in in the beginning that cushions our, our movements inside the eye. Yes? It was in a little tube. We fold it up, put it inside a tube, and then the plunger that takes it down inside the eye. Uh, and that's becoming more and more um, uh, automated as well. Now what we need to do here is seal up these incisions. And this is key. Uh, there's been a concern, as we'll look at a little bit later, that these incisions um, may not seal as hermetic, which means that we don't allow anything inside the eye watertight. And so that's where the interest in surgical adhesive, glues, and other forms of incision technology come into play. What I do here is I test it with this dye. If the dye, um, if there's fluid leaking out, we'll see it dilute the dye. 
So this is basically what cataract surgery is about today. And now we're going to take a look and see what automated devices are coming down the road. Now, you heard the word femtosecond laser. Interestingly enough, femtosecond laser also plays a role in where we're going with cataract surgery. Um, I like to think that the incision is really crucial because cataract surgery starts with and ends with the incision. And the incision is important to prevent anything from leaking out of the eye or getting into the eye after surgery, such as bacteria that could cause infection. And we also want with our incision to control induced astigmatism. And I think those things are somewhat technical, so we'll move on. Um, I mentioned to you uh, one of the trends, yes. That's correct. Absence of heat, so you do not damage surrounding tissue, so that the location of, I don't want to use the word damage, but the location of whatever you're doing is limited to that finite space. So what you're doing is limiting energy in time and in space so that it will create what you want without surrounding damage to the tissues. But there's a whole bunch of Exactly. All right. But it's so that you can precisely focus the energy in time and space. Uh, yes. Um, I, I, I don't th yeah, the question is, do I use a stitch? With incisions that are made that small, uh, and with the testing we do at the close of surgery, the overwhelming majority of patients do not require suturing. Um, older techniques, which required larger incisions, uh, definitely required sutures. But today, it's rare that I have to place a suture. The, suture, the question is whether we'll remove them. Um, the sutures can be removed after a few weeks. Uh, they do biodegrade some after a few weeks, some after a few years. Uh, we generally remove them if they loosen or come to the surface and bother the patient. Other than that, we tend to leave them. Now, it's, a, it's almost like you're a shill because in the absence of sutures, we want to be certain that our incisions are properly sealed. And we have technology now that has, has gone through FDA trials, and there are several uh, manufacturers involved in this process, of surgical adhesives. Uh, I worked with a company. This product was called iZip. It now has another name. It's not important. But these two chemicals are mixed at the time of surgery, and they become a hydrogel bandage. It's truly remarkable technology. So here, as you saw in my other video, you know what the incision looks like at the end, and I've stained it with this dye. And all I do is take this little applicator with the two solutions and paint it across the incision, and it forms a bandage which stays for about a month. So this has completed FDA trials. It's in the review process. We're very hopeful that we will have this tool uh, at our avail in the near term because it promises to give us greater safety. For those of you interested in data, I don't mean to bore you with it, but I published a paper in the Journal of Refractive Surgery a little over a year ago where we looked at incision size. Here, 2.2 versus what is the traditional 3-millimeter incision. And we looked at the amount of astigmatism that we induced, and we found that the smaller the incision, the less the uh, astigmatism, and um, therefore the, the better the quality of vision in the early postoperative period. Making the incision the way we want, making it hermetically sealed, that is not to allow any microbes uh, into the eye, is not always so easy. Um, it's difficult for the surgeon to control 
the nature of that incision. And there are certain structural variables. Uh, we want it to be square in its surface area. The type of blade, the pressure inside the eye, the nature of the tissue, all will have bearing on how, um, how accurate that incision is made. But the surgeon also is variable. Every surgeon makes the incision a little bit differently. So getting a precise incision has been difficult. About five or six years ago, working down here um, at UCI and with the um, Intralase company, we looked about upon the idea, this is the first time this was ever done, of using the femtosecond laser to make a cataract incision. And you're seeing this bubble layer here. This is a cadaver eye. And what we did is we used the femtosecond laser to try and create incisions that would be uniform so we could get the same incision in every eye at every time. And indeed, it turned out that we were able to do that. Now, the Intralase company, for whatever reason, and the answer is economics, decided uh, to go instead into developing the keratoplasty, a corneal transplant technology that you saw before, rather than go into the cataract arena. However, now there are three companies that have, and they recognize that the femtosecond laser can make automated incisions in a variety of places in the eye. Number one, the cataract incision, as many as you want. Number two, making the opening on the surface of the lens, the capsulorexis, or that thing that you saw me peel. And number three, also softening the lens material or cataract to make it easier to remove. So that's where we're seeing automation coming down the road. Uh, the, I happen to be a consultant for Optometica. They're a company up in the Stanford area. And as you can see here, they are now, um, they are using, this is the bubble layer that cuts precisely in the corneal tissue to generate the incision that we want. Now, um, the difference between what I did, we used a variety of measurements. They're now using what's called OCT, or a very accurate way of, of measuring the, the tissue inside the eye. You can determine how to make the incision exactly as you want. So the key steps in automation were going to be making the opening into the eye, making the circular capsulorexis, and then also softening the cataract. Um, Again, this comes from Optometica. There are three companies working in this arena. And here, the OCT is measuring the eye. These are certain parameters being determined. And then what we do here is we're going to use the laser uh, to make a precise opening, exactly the size we want, uh, exactly the position we want. And then also, the laser is going to be used to soften the cataract material. Here, making a series of tiny little cubes or pieces um, so that all one has to do is put an instrument in and suck these out rather than use the ultrasound energy to carve up the lens. So here the opening's been made, we're just peeling it out of the eye, and now the pieces are being aspirated rather than using the more dangerous ultrasound. So these three things, the incisions, so they can be precise in their size and dimension, the opening, the circular opening, or oval if we want it for whatever reason, and the removal of the lens material are being automated. And what we've also learned is that this is done manually in a cadaver eye. This is done with a laser, and we found that they are identical uh, in their, their strength and, and their character. I mentioned to you people want to rid themselves of glasses. IOL means intraocular lens. 
And of the six A's that we discussed before, accommodation to enable people to see far and near without glasses is where everybody wants to go. So what lenses where are we going to use in the future? Today in this country, we have four devices approved by the FDA. Uh, three of them are multifocals. These three here, this is the re, uh, Restore from Alcon, the Technus from AMO, and the Resume from AMO, and this is the Crystal Lens from Bausch & Lohm. This lens is an accommodative lens. I put that in quotes because it doesn't always work so well. And these others are what are referred to as multifocals. They divide light energy to give far and near vision. Um, what we expect we'll see in the future um, is all accommodating lenses. That is, we want lenses that will give us good quality of vision at far, at near, and at computer distance, so that all ranges are covered, what I call seamless vision. We can't offer that to people today with any assurances. Sometimes we achieve it, but it's, it's not something that I can guarantee a patient they will achieve. Um, here's what's coming down the road. This is a device. This is called the synchrony lens. It's actually two pieces, two lenses. It's like a telescope. And it has these flexible bridges. And when the eye changes focus, these bridges will move, bringing these lenses further or closer together, affecting the power of the lens. And this will probably be within the next six months or year. Uh, it's called the Synchrony. It was made by a company called Visiogen, recently purchased by AMO. And I think it will have a significant impact on the market. Um, so this is coming down the road. It promises to do very nicely. This one is just starting. Uh, it's in the infancy of implantation to human subjects, being used in South Africa. Uh, it's got these little fluid pockets that shift with focusing to try and change the shape of the lens when the patient tries to focus. This is a lens that unfortunately didn't make it. It may still someday do it. It fills up the whole capsule, and it's pliable so that it can adjust to focusing, but it didn't quite be pliable enough yet. And this is, a, this is another interesting tool um, that changes its shape with the focus of the eye. Uh, it's been implanted in also in some sighted eyes in Spain and seems to have some promise to it. But that's where we're headed with our intraocular lenses. Now... We looked at questions, who will need it? We've covered now, how will it be done? Here's a real question, who's going to do it? For those of you who like to read the LA Times, and we're down in Orange County now, but those who read the LA Times, every Monday there's the health section. And a few weeks ago, the lead article was about a physician shortage that really is coming. I know there's no shortage of doctors in Southern California today. Whether we will see it here or not, I don't know. But nationwide, there's no question that we will. Um, and so I showed you some numbers before about the demands. Now let's take a look at our workforce. Um, so the real question is, who's going to be around to do the surgery? And will it be us, meaning will it be us as ophthalmologists? We have a declining workforce in ophthalmology. The number of ophthalmologists in the United States is not going to increase over the next 20 years. In fact, it's going to decrease. We are now retiring, because we're baby boomers as well, we are now retiring at a faster rate than we're being reproduced. Residency positions have been reduced, they're only or relatively flat, so 450 ophthalmologists are being produced each year in the United States. 
and yet we've got this aging population. We, as physicians, are very expensive and time-consuming to train. It takes four years of college, four years of medical school, an internship, and at least three or four years of training before you have an ophthalmologist. And then it takes a good amount of experience before you have uh, adequate talent to do the surgery that's necessary for cataract. So it takes a long time to make us and is an expensive process. The other thing that's always impressed me is that we are really not selected for our dexterity. No one came and said to me, um, are you sure you can do this surgery? Um, Whereas if you wanted to go to dental school, you had to carve a piece of chalk. If you wanted to go to pharmacy school, at least when I was in school, you had to know how to roll a suppository. Um, No one ever tested me for dexterity. Hmm? So, we're right there, Tim. So, um, the real question is, will we be able to match the trends? Remember, I told you where we're going with this. So, who will do it? The megatrend is perhaps not us. When These are my grandchildren. When they get to be professional age, um, they may be really pushed out because what we have now is an explosion of technology with the femtosecond laser. I don't really think you need a skilled surgeon to do that. So there is a chance that the ophthalmologist is not going to be the one doing that kind of surgery for so many people who are going to need it. So, and at the very end of the day, who's going to pay for all of this? Premium lenses and these femtosecond lasers, it's all very expensive. And so the question is, will patients have to reach in their pocket if they want to have these automated devices? We really don't know the answer. So those are the questions that we need to answer. Who will need it? We've looked at that. How we're going to do it? We've looked at that. Who's going to do it? We're really not sure. And who's going to pay for it? We're not sure. So I have just a few minutes to take questions. I thank you very, very much for your attention. What about Europe, Asia, India, people flying out of their country to have surgery? Um, good technology always trumps price. That's been my experience over the years. So with the uh, very favorable economy that you're seeing in India, they're right up there. So there are good services available in countries like India today. The interesting place is China and other places in Asia. Uh, China has been so underserved, and and world blindness with cataract is still a very, very real phenomenon, uh, particularly in places like China. And China has moved toward a development of of non-automated, toward mechanical surgery, and they are developing these training centers in parallel with some automated devices as well. But I think if you have an, these tools located in, in centers, uh, I think that's what the future will be. I really think that while these devices are going to cost a half a million dollars when they come down the road within this year or the next, um, in a few years they'll be inexpensive. And I think what you'll see is technicians trained to do this surgery, even in what is now referred to as the developing nations. India is producing a lot of equipment, a lot of ophthalmologists, a lot of research. I haven't been to India for about eight or nine years now, last time. Well, we have lenses that can correct for astigmatism. Oh, I'm sorry. Question is, can we also deal with the astigmatism? We can deal with the astigmatism in a variety of ways, including lenses that correct for astigmatism, 
We can make special incisions with the femto laser to correct, and we can use, like LASIK, the eczema laser following surgery to correct for stigmatism. No. The routine way is to do it at the time of surgery and then augment afterwards if necessary. But, but we do it. Do you need that computer back up? Uh, we do it at the time of surgery with artifact with intraocular lenses that is they are referred to as toric lenses, and yes, patients do also pay a premium for the toric lenses. Yes, they're very commonly used today. Is a um, laser more that advanced that it seems like you might need more That's exactly the point. You, you, the question is: Does the femtosecond laser mean more automation? Absolutely, because. What I showed you in my video is what is surgeon-dependent. Those things are surgeon-dependent are now going to be machine-dependent. 